You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Made the conscious choice of, I just want to study what I like and see where it takes me, which is scary, right? Because it's hugely expensive to do. Um, and, you know, I was able to come out at the other end of that, okay. It was a little scary at first, but I just, I made the conscious choice to, um, I mean, I was glad I did what I did in undergrad, but I wanted a very different experience. And I wanted to mix and match and be able to take classes that interested me in, and, and then see if that opened up a career path rather than start with the career path and train toward it. That was David Bisbee, Deputy Permanent Representative of the United States of America to the World Trade Organization. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. As we kick off the fifth season of the podcast, I could not think of a better guest than David. I have known David since the beginning of my time working with WTO. We work on several files, including trade facilitation and government procurement. David is very experienced in the multilateral trading system, and it's always a delight to exchange views with him, which he's happy to do in a frank manner. This conversation would be a bit like many of the conversations we've had over the years, and we cover a bit of how he sees the WTO and how it has changed since he first arrived in Geneva. However, before we get to that, I was looking forward to hearing more about the evolution of his professional career before he got to Geneva. He traces his career as it evolved from his undergrad degree and how he leveraged his experience and expertise as he moved on to new assignments. It was a pleasure talking to David, and I was glad he was here to launch the fifth season. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Subscribe, you won't regret it. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help by spreading the word, recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in this conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. David, hello. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Sure. Nice to see you again. Uh, I've known you uh, for a while, like here in Geneva, since pretty much from the start, from my start in the mm -hmm. WTO. Uh, you've been here since when? 2012. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. pretty much, I think I was here maybe one year before you. Mm -hmm. But, but mm -hmm. yeah, we've been known each other for a while and it's always been really good working with you. But Before we get to that, like, I want to hear a bit more about uh, you. Where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in New York, New York. Uh, in upstate New York, and then uh, moved around a bit and went to school in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, and then moved to Washington for, for college. So more or less, Washington is more or less home. Washington, yeah. that's what you call Washington, home. Washington, D.C., yeah. 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 And uh, you studied uh, business? So yeah, I, I studied uh, finance and business finance, finance undergrad. And business. And what were, like, were you, at that stage, were you hoping to become a diplomat? Was that something that you were, like, aiming for? No, you know, I, I, I grew up in a, in a pretty rural area, and, you know, my, my father was a professional, so it's not like I was in, in a bubble, but, um, it, you know, the foreign affairs piece was not really something I had ever really thought about. Um, you know, it was, I hate to say, it was in the 80s, right? So everyone wanted to go to Wall Street, and yeah. I think... Um, You know, when I was picking college majors, it was sort of the, the one that, um, you know, without making too many decisions, had a career, you know, you saw a job at the end of it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when you're in high school and you're starting to pick these career, you know, pick these majors, the first question everyone says is, well, what are you going to do with that? Right. And so 
business seemed like I didn't have to make too many decisions. Um, in hindsight, I'm not sure it was the right decision, but it, it, <laughs> really? you know, when I was 17, you know, it, it sort of made sense. But it, it does seem to be like pretty versatile, the career. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was, I'm glad that I did it. I, I had um, one of the reasons that I sort of was drawn to it is that I, I had limited choices because I, um, you know, uh, going to college and, and, you know, looking at a catalog of 300 things is, is a bit, you know, I wasn't quite sure where I was going to end up. And so the nice thing about um, the business curriculum was I had like one elective a year. And so the discretion there was limited. <laughs> and again, I'm not sure I would, you know, I think when I, I went the opposite direction in grad school because I had done that, but um, I had, there was some comfort in knowing you know, what, what I needed to take and, and that it was just methodically moving through, you know, so you had marketing, you had finance, um, you had accounting, and, and I, you know, knew what the four years were going to be. Um, and then I had a little bit of space to play around with, with some other things. And, um, but I didn't quite know what I wanted to do until midway through with the playing around piece. Yeah. Um, so it was comforting to know that, um, that every semester I didn't have to stress out and plan, you know, everything I wanted to do because I wasn't quite sure. I, I actually, that, that completely makes sense to me because I feel the same way about my own career. <laughs> <laughs> like you were saying that maybe, maybe like if you were to do it again, maybe you wouldn't do it exactly the same. Right. Uh, I also feel the same way and that's why I'm a lawyer, but I, I'm trying to hint to my daughters not to become lawyers. <laughs> but, but having said that, I recognize that, and similarly to what I said to you, that law as a profession is very versatile. It offers many mm -hmm. possibilities. You don't, you don't have to become a litigation lawyer. You can pretty mm -hmm. much do a wide range of things. And I think that that's also similar to in your case. But uh, when you finish school, then uh, at that point, before going to school, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do, but then after? So I, I chose to focus on finance. Um, I'm not a math person, and, and again, this is, um, I sort of finished university right on the cusp of, you know, sort of the beginning of the digital age. So, um, you know, we had to go to the computer lab and do SAS work. Um, and then, you know, within two years, you, you could have done everything I did on Excel, right? So I was sort of in that, you know, my, my finance as I did it was with an HP calculator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then you immediately become obsolete because you enter. Uh, so I, I, we were in Washington um, and um, I wanted to stay in Washington. Um, it's not a financial capital by any stretch of the imagination. So I looked at some banks. It was a big, you know, it was a, a big push for banking consolidation. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but it was also, I graduated into one of the biggest recessions that modern, you know, that we had known, 90, 90 91 with um, the Iraq invasion. So all of a sudden the, you know, the job market kind of tanked. Um, but I worked for a retail brokerage firm in, in Washington, that was my first job. And I had been working um, part-time my last two years of school for Shearson Lehman, which no longer exists. Um, and then it got converted into something else, and then it got converted into Dean Witter. And so I stayed on and, and spent two years in retail brokerage, um, but realized that it wasn't about the finance and it wasn't about learning about companies. It was more about, can you sell things to people? And it just wasn't me. It, yeah. it was, um, and I wasn't a hardcore mathematician enough to you know, sort of go the analyst route. Um, and so you know, it was helpful, but I realized that that wasn't, um, you know, my interest and my skill set in that particular job didn't align. So it was fine for two years. And then um, my wife and I, my, before she was my wife, we had decided that we wanted to do something while we were young. And so um, I went and taught English in Japan for ah, two years. So right. that was my break of, um, <laughs> that's where my career started to take a few left turns. Um, yeah, because I saw that you studied Asian studies. Yeah. Was that like connected to that? It's it sort of. And then again, that, it was sort of a shortcut that I came to. Um, 
at the end of that trajectory. So I sp we spent two years in Japan um, teaching English and traveling and thinking about, you know, we were studying for grad school and thinking about, well, what do we do next? And um, did you learn Japanese during your stay? Yeah, and I had actually, that was a senior year of university. I had taken Japanese just for fun. Um, actually, ironically, I had... Um, one of my electives, I had taken French and was just miserable. It was the worst grade I've ever gotten. So there's a bit of irony to ending up in Geneva. Um, but I, I, I had wanted to learn um, a language. I thought it would be useful. And, you know, in, in the 80s, everyone thought we would be speaking Japanese. Yeah, you know, and so right. it, was, it was an interesting thing to do. So I had started it in college and then um, was, was looking at various teaching programs at the time like that was just you know it's the fall of the I'm dating myself terribly but you know Eastern Europe had just opened up Peace Corps was transitioning from you know sort of the you know the hardcore Peace Corps stuff in Africa to teaching English in Eastern Europe and so a lot of my friends were looking at that um, and there were a couple of decent programs and so I wanted some stability in you know I didn't want to just up and leave I was too I'm a little too business oriented to, to take that leap um, and Japan the government runs a pretty good program um, that my uh, now wife um, got into um, and so we decided to move to Japan um, and then I continued to study while, while I was there so, yeah, so was that like uh, an experience that opened your eyes to like what diplomacy could be, like working in another country and living in another country? It, it, it definitely did. And um, I don't know if it was, if I made that connection at the time, but it was, um, you know, I had thought about studying abroad when I was an undergrad and, um, you know, again, with the rigid, I had chosen a path that was very rigid um, and I was afraid to deviate from that path too much. And I, I kind of regretted that at the end. And so, this was a chance to, to, to take that step. And it, it is sort of interesting, you know, it flips the lens a bit and you, you begin to see, you know, you, you begin to evaluate the positions and the, the views that you have differently when you're out of context, right? Yeah. That you, you didn't even think that that was um, a bias or a way of thinking. And, and so, um, you know, moved to Japan, second richest country in the world, or so I thought, with a vastly different standard of living. And so you begin to see, like at first you say, well, this is so stupid. But then you <laughs> yeah. begin to understand the trade-offs that people make and, and the balances and, and you reflect on, um, you know, we had just a, a silly example. Um, we didn't have hot water in our apartment. You, you, you had a bathtub that heated up, but we didn't have running hot water. Um, which became very inconvenient in the winter. And so we bought one of these little gas, you know, they, they heat it as you use it. And now it's pretty common, but, um, but then you just sort of think of, yeah, every American has 120 gallons of boiling water in their basement 24 hours a yeah. day. And, and it's something that I never, I mean, silly things like that, but you, you begin to look at... Um, you know, the economics a little bit differently and sort of consumer choices and policy choices. And that's, you know, it was there during one of the worst rice harvests in, in the early 992, I think they, you know, in Japan is very heavily protected with rice. <laughs> um, and suddenly they didn't have any. And so they were, it was, you know, pretty traumatic national experience where they were, you know, choosing to import or having to import. Um, and just sort of thinking about that and reading the newspaper and, and sort of, the, to me it was trade policy before I understood trade policy, yes. right? It's just sort of, it's just rice, but it, it was so significant. So things like that just sort of opened up a broader thinking about questioning kind of the orthodoxy of what you've learned and then um, looking at other policy choices from other, uh, other government choices. So then that kind of opened up more of a, um, I, I've never been a total government person, but I, I like the intersection between the private sector and, and government policy. Um, and then again, you know, we did a lot of travel. Japan was very expensive to live, and so you could um, travel quite cheaply. And, and at that point, Southeast Asia was booming. 
And so that kind of opened up, um, you know, an interest in, in foreign investment and what's going on in the world. You go, you know, you, you take a vacation to Malaysia and you drive down the beach road, but you see all of these Japanese factories being set up. And so to me, that just kind of um, began the transition from finance to something else. I wasn't quite there yet, but, but that was sort of that experience. I think was really um, useful in, in just reflecting on um, public policy from a from a different standpoint. And then after the two years, you you came back to to the states, and that's when you studied, when you did your masters. Yeah, and, and so um, I was looking for for programs, and I wanted kind of I wanted to go in the opposite direction. Um, you know, you have a little bit more freedom or so I thought, um, <laughs> in grad school, the pressure's a little bit less. Yeah. Um, I mean, you still need a job at the end of it, but, um, and I, you know, we had, one of the reasons I, I chose to go, to go to Washington was I wanted, um, I didn't want to be isolated. I wanted to go to a university where I could work or, you know, and it had its benefits, but I also, um, for grad school, kind of wanted to just have that environment um, without, you know, I had always worked in my undergrad and I wanted to do that at the time, but it, you have a different educational experience and it was very... You were working like in parallel to your studies? Yeah, like part-time, but, okay. but you know... Um, Because that is not something that is so common in the U.S., is it? I don't know. I. Um, Because I was, I was, yeah. I was going to law school and I was working, and mm -hmm. I, I found it like, so useful because a lot of the concepts that I was looking at, like mm -hmm. in theory, mm -hmm. I would actually be working and implementing them, mm -hmm. and I, I think that the concepts clicked in a different way, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, where, yeah. where you were doing it, not just like studying them. Yeah. No, and I, I think I'm much more of a, um, like a tactile learner, like I. I don't understand theoretical concepts very well. I need to kind of mm. put it in context. So when so looking at grad schools, I chose something that was very academic and isolated and had a lot more choice and freedom, maybe too much in terms of... So that I ended up in... An, uh, I didn't want an MBA or I thought I wanted an MBA, but then when it came time to, well, what would I... Um, what would I choose? Like, what what path the passion wasn't really there. Like, um, and so I know I wanted to, to do something public policy oriented, um, but didn't quite know what that would be. And so um, picked a program that had, um, I could leverage you know, some interest in, in Southeast Asia um, and looking at kind of the economic development dynamism from that perspective. Um, I could have gone about it from a, like an economics perspective and then done a regional piece, but I didn't have the economic credentials to mm. talk my way into an econ program. <laughs> so, I mean, a little bit is, you know, you work with what you got and, and I, um, I knew what my strengths and weaknesses were and, and math and, and economic theory was not a strength. So, Um, I, I ended up in a program where I could choose. I did a lot of um, city and regional planning okay. um, work or economic development, economic theory from the development perspective work. Um, and then a fair amount of sort of um, the anthropology vein of, you know, not forensic anthropology, but just kind of societal issues. Um, Unrelated, but I think it, it did help when you move into the policy, you know, later in life. I, I think um, you have this appreciation for, you know, democratic institutions are messy and they're really, you know, kind of you, you can't um, you can't really devise public policy in abstract. And you know, I always find economists to be too. Dry, like, and yeah. also like very exactly, yeah. and and you know my my joke because um, my brain doesn't um, <laughs> my brain is you know I, I think in 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 jokes but um, there is this joke about economists and and 
a can opener. Have you ever heard that joke? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, uh, the short story is that you know five guys are trapped on an island, and you've got a construction worker and a, a physicist and a you know blah blah blah, and so they they've got a can of food, um, and they they all devise a way to open the can. You know, the guy, one guy wants to heat it till it explodes. Another guy wants to drop a boulder on it. And the economist comes in at the end and says, you guys are ridiculous. You just assume you have a can opener. And to me, <laughs> it's just like there's a lot of public policy that, um, especially, you know, representing the United States where it's so complex. And people say, well, why can't you just do X? And it's like, because I have a messy political system. And I have, you know, stakeholders on all sides. And that's not how my Congress works. And... Um, so that's when I, you know, it's my mental can opener. But, but this was like a bit, you, you were doing it like consciously, like you, you said like, I need these tools, or this is something that more you're looking at it like in hindsight. I think it was, I mean, it worked out well for me. I'm not, it wasn't a plan. I, I wanted to, um, I, had, we, I had made money in Japan. I had put a, you know, a decent amount away. Um, I still had to borrow for school, but I, you know, I had enough to live on and I made the conscious choice of, I just want to study what I like and see where it takes me, which is scary, right? Because it's hugely expensive to do. Um, and, you know, I was able to come out at the other end of that. Okay. It was a little scary at first, but I just, I made the conscious choice to, um, I mean, I was glad I did what I did in undergrad, but I wanted a very different experience. And... I wanted to mix and match and be able to take classes that interested me in, and, and then see if that opened up a career path rather than start with the career path and train toward it. Because I just, it wasn't quite sure, you know, I never had a clear passion to be X. Um, I don't know if anybody has a clear passion to be a government <laughs> bureaucrat, but you know, we kind of, um, and, and so for me, grad school was a way to just, um, you know, within confines, kind of probe what interested me. And, and um, Southeast Asia was an area that was fun to look at and then bring in, you know, these urban questions of urbanization and questions of, of regional planning, questions of economic development policy, um, public policy, um, looking at, you know, as case studies, the different examples. And then And, and that's what led to um, a particular interest. We had traveled to Vietnam in the 90s. You know, it was a very, you know, it was right on the, on the edge of, of um, the embargo had just been lifted by Clinton. Um, it was unique. You know, Indonesia was booming. Thailand was booming. You know, it was in that neighborhood. Um, and so we'd, when I got back to grad school, um, I chose to try and focus on, on Vietnam as a sort of a locus of case study. It ended up um, being a bit difficult because it was really, really new and was evolving. And so there's no, there was not a lot to work with, but I had some great professors that had in, interest in the region. Um, and so that kind of helped. And that ultimately later on, um, I did a lot of trade work with Vietnam. So it, it kind of came back. And then after that, I saw, I don't know if it's immediately after this, but then you were at the, at the World Bank? Yeah, so I, I came back from, um, from grad school. We were upstate New York and then moved down to, back to Washington um, and was sort of figuring out, okay, well, what, you know, Washington is filled with people that work in the international field. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something that kept that piece open, but I wasn't, quite sure what um, what that would be um, and you know was interning for the um, it's Washington International Trade is the WIDA I don't know if you've ever been to Washington but um, and that you know was a really tiny operation at the time um, and so it was sort of looking at trade um, but Washington's very you know there's a lot that's um, congressionally focused, like, you know, people work on the Hill and then you use that. And so I was sort of leaning in, okay, I guess I have to go work on the Hill um, to get some of that experience. Um, and then just through a series of accidents, um, I ended up 
um, taking a, a temporary job at the World Bank that then I leveraged into um, a short-term contract that then leveraged into a longer-term contract. Um, and I was fortunate I ended up um, working with for someone who um, had done a lot of work in Vietnam and had opened up the, the World Bank office there um, and then was at that point, there was a window with um, Burma, Myanmar. Um, this would have been mid-90s. Um, and so, you know, to be, you know, to sit in the World Bank and talk about, well, what would, you know, increase engagement. And then all of a sudden, uh, the financial, Asian financial crisis hit. Um, and so, while that was more about kind of Korea or, or the more developed economies, um, it gave me a window into doing work on um, on some of the um, other Southeast Asian countries that I had been interested in. So I did some work on um, Malaysia and the Philippines um, okay. as well. And so um, again, I stayed. I was there for three years. Um, not an economist, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. So I was faking my way through that, <laughs> but but learned a, a phenomenal amount. Um, and um, just really enjoyed kind of that, um, you know, learning the policy piece from that perspective. Um, but the work there was very much, um, you know, it's behind a computer, um, which wasn't really that, you know, not particularly dynamic. But it was great. It was a fantastic three years. And I, I, I would like to hear like how, because you have experience in the World Bank and. The World Bank and the IMF and the WTO, they're related somehow. Mm -hmm. How do you see like, the complementary nature of the work that they do now that you've experienced also mm -hmm. from the WTO angle? Yeah, I mean, I think that... If, if there is. Maybe. No, I, I definitely <laughs> think there is. It's, it's sort of, um, it's a little bit, uh, you know, so you have, um, you have these components of policy advice, um, whether it is you know, sort of at the strict en end of the spectrum with the IMF and, and sort of it's very rigid, or you know, looking at the World Bank where um, I was in the, um, it was called Poverty Reduction Economic Management Unit. Um, and so you, you had a decent overview of kind of the, the range of programs that the bank was operating. Um, you know, for Southeast Asia, they were sort of winding down because it was very successful and things were, were doing well. And so programs were, were decreasing, um, which is a good thing. But you begin to see the policy pieces and the intersection. You know, you can't... Um, you can't bolster a manufacturing sector if you're ignoring your health sector or your education sector. So, you know, for me, it was a good window into those pieces. And then I think the WTO piece um, plays the part in, you know, we are all trade ministries. Um, we are all evaluating policy choices. The WTO should be a resource for how do you get to, you know, um, you know, some of the underpinnings of, of the WTO and, and the GATT um, are governance. They're, they're, you know, that's the, you know, the, the secret of the WTO is the governance elements, not the tariff elements, yeah. right? And then I think that gets ignored. And so you begin to see the huge developmental connection with notice and comment, with administrative review, you know, with these things that we take for granted at the WTO. Um, and so you do see that they are on a continuum of, of helping to implement or to providing a roadmap um, for if you want to develop, you can't just say, I want to develop. You have to have steps that you can take. Um, and so, you know, the, the trade piece kind of dovetailed with, with you know. And after, after the World Bank, which you mentioned was uh, around three years, mm -hmm. then there's still... <laughs> A lot of uh, between that and and eventually you coming here to Geneva. What mm -hmm. were some of the other things that you did in between? So, you know, I, I was 
I was sort of in this situation where um, I had a, a really interesting job that I liked, um, but I didn't have the education qualifications to stay for 20 years. Um, and at some point, you know, it becomes a little bit limiting. And I was sort of, you know, it's an addictive place. It's a fantastic place to work. Um, and it was a real hard decision to say, okay, I need to do something else because this is, I could stay in this job at this level for 30 years, but that's not really realistic. Um, How do you make that decision? Because I've, I've talked to many people that are like in that kind of like, yeah. uh, like crossroads, but they sometimes they decide to stay or, or they don't. How, yeah. how do you make that decision? I mean, you know, for me it was like you have kids and then you're terrified of how you pay for college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I don't know. I, I think it wasn't... Um, they got to a point where it was not as fulfilling, emotionally fulfilling, as I wanted it to be. And I knew that, you know, it wasn't anyone's fault other than, um, you know, I did not have a PhD in economics and wasn't about to go get one. And so, um, you know, I needed to make a choice if I could do the data work at an analyst level maybe forever but you know the world is changing and, and um, institutions are changing and so you know 30 years ago maybe someone could have been in that job forever but you know now with um, the way organizations are they you know you there wasn't a lot of security necessarily for that so and and then you know I was looking around and thinking well I don't really um, I have regional expertise. I have a region that I really like to work on and know a bit about. Um, I would like to do more trade work. And I actually was lucky enough to find an opening at the Commerce Department where I could compensate for my lack of trade expertise with a regional expertise. And they, I was lucky enough to find a supervisor that took a gamble and said, well, I can teach you the trade piece. <laughs> um, And so I leveraged sort of, again, the Southeast Asia piece. Um, I, I leveraged into trade and I, my first job was on uh, Indonesia and the Philippines uh, for commerce department and then worked on, on broader Southeast Asia and then ultimately moved back towards the Vietnam piece. Um, so that was kind of, it was a bumpy transition and it was a little bit of a, you know, I had to take a pay cut temporarily Um, but it was worth it in the end and, and you know there's good things and bad things about government work but they they paid me to learn and you can't always say that you know and, and so I'm fortunate um, to have that experience and then um, so I was at Commerce for, for five years almost five years um, before I moved to um, to the USTR Uh, all of these um, decisions that you've made professionally, I mean, I, I do see like a, a connecting mm -hmm. thread, but maybe at the time, because you do seem to have like a clear path of where you were going, but sometimes like people looking from outside might have some comments on it. Was this something that you were aware of or wasn't happening or, but you were convinced of, about your path? No, I was not convinced. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I, I've done a pretty decent job of leveraging what I had, you know. Um, and so, you know, I went from having an interest in something to getting a job that connected that interest. Um, and then, you know, taking up one set of experiences that was maybe 40% of the next job and learning the other 60%. And so I've kind of, I've been lucky in, in that sense. Um, and I did, you know, I had, um, I milked, you know, my, I really enjoyed working on Southeast Asia. I had a fantastic time. Um, and so went from the Southeast Asia office at Commerce to the Southeast Asia office at, at USTR. Um, and then had just fantastic years of, um, largely, prim primarily, you know, the busiest piece was Vietnam, but I worked on a number of countries in the region. Um, we had done, um, we had a bilateral agreement, a bilateral trade agreement with Vietnam in 2001. So I worked on the implementation of that. 
and that was huge chunks of the GATT. I mean, it was really transformational um, work. And then worked on WTO accession. Uh, it came in at the end of, of Vietnam's WTO accession mm -hmm. for the last year and a half. Um, and then did the TIFA and the implementation of, of that. Um, and then at the same time was working on implementation for, I covered Cambodia as well. Um, and, and then we had a, a similar bilateral agreement with Laos PDR, which was also chunks of the WTO, um, you know, the, the GATT as they worked on reforming their trade regime. So I did a lot of work with USAID and a lot of kind of technical assistance work. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, um, Vietnam just went leaps and bounds um, after their accession. And so um, it was, you know, it went from being largely about, you know, working with them and their plans on technical assistance to dealing with, you know, a huge range of commercial and trade issues. So it was fascinating how quickly it moved. Um, so I feel really fortunate that I've had, you know, from the World Bank to Commerce to, to USTR, um, it was eight, ten years in, in, within one region. But then you sort of realize, okay, I don't want to be that guy that's just, you know, I mean, there's people whose whole career is China, and you can make lots of money off that. <laughs> um, you know, but I'm not sure that um, everyone can say that. So there was sort of a, you know, another existential moment of um, making a move and um, moving to multilateral. And what are some of the similarities between bilateral and, and multilateral that you see? Or that, as you said, that you've always kind of like taken some of your experience and applied it to the next one? Mm -hmm. like one what were some of the things that you learned yeah. in your dealing with bilateral that you are now implementing in a multilateral? You know, I think, um, and that's, it's been a real challenge. And I, I did have a lot of... Um, you know, I was at a point in my career where I didn't think, you know, I thought, uh, this, I can do this, right? It's just one thing to another. Um, but the skills are very different. Yeah. And, and I didn't, you know, quite, um, you know, process in, in very simple ways. Um, you have very deep relationships with a core set of people when you're working bilaterally. There is this consistency. You do have to get on a plane and travel, you know, so you're not seeing them every day, um, but you do develop, you know, you're in it for the long haul on a, on a number of issues. Um, and then you develop a way of, you know, I'm fairly blunt and, and kind of um, not particularly diplomatic. And so then you come to Geneva and, you know, there's this way in which people speak and, um, you realize that you're sitting in this giant room, people, you're not looking them in the face, right? And that's a big piece of the bilateral work is you, you know, you can tell when someone's angry or you can tell when your point is, you know, you're, you know, you get the feedback and then you sit in a big room at the WTO and you stare at your microphone and you put your earpiece in. No one sees you, you can't see anybody's reaction. Um, and it did take a while to figure that out. And then you realize, yeah, I'm being broadcast in three languages. Maybe I need to speak in a different way to make sure that I'm clear, <laughs> you know, in any of those, um, hopefully all three. Um, so there were things like that that I just didn't ever anticipate. I thought it was all about how well do you know the GATT and how, you know, and it's, it was much more sort of learning to adapt um, both in the big room and then understanding this sort of the hallway dynamics of um, you don't actually get anything done in the meeting room. The meetings are pointless in many ways. <laughs> that what you, it you know, it, like it is, it's the, it's the meetings that you have, um, small group meetings, the work that you do. Um, and those are maybe more similar to the global Exactly. Network. So I had to, you know, figure out um, that remember that, the, that those skills could be plugged in there. Um, and when I got here, I worked on trade facilitation uh, agreement, and that was fantastic. Um, I came in, I think we had about a year and a half, so that was a 11-year negotiation. So I came in, you know, I can't claim credit for that, but I came in uh, at, at the end. But there was a huge amount of, of 
problem solving that that I was able to draw on, you know, because bilaterally that's what you, you know, you, it's really hard to problem solve with 164 members at the same time. You really do need to isolate, okay, well, what does your law say? What, you know, is this discipline really creating a problem or, you know, is it something you want to do? Is it something you can't do? Something you don't understand? Um, so it was a ton of, of bilateral outreach. Um, but then navigating, you know, the plenary sessions was, that was a huge learning curve for me too because um, you can't talk to everybody and you have to make sure that um, you think you've done your homework and you think you've got it down, but somebody can come out of left field. And um, so I think I mellowed a bit here. I think I was a bit more, <laughs> um, I think my frustration showed a bit more in the early years, but. Um, but uh, when you arrived, you said it was almost like a year and a half after you arrived that you, we concluded the trade facilitation. So, I mean, it had been going on for a while, but from your point of view, it was like, ah, oh, this is fast. We're going to be concluding agreements all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think I knew um, how much work went into it. Um, but I did, yeah, I think I did have it created some, you know, Bali was, Bali was impressive. Um, and there was a will. Uh, Michael Punk was here. It was fantastic um, leadership there. Um, you know, it was in many ways much more unique than I thought at the time, you know, than I, than I appreciated at the time. Um, but, you know, and I, you know, I do think um, we've lost a few of the lessons that, that made that work. Yeah, actually um, I want to ask you a bit about that. How do you compare uh, some of the changes for good or bad that have happened since mm -hmm. you arrived in 2012 until, uh, and now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, one, I mean, there's been some seismic shifts in, in you know, some of the big players um, taking on, on bigger roles. I think, you know, you've gotten, uh, particularly in Latin America, a huge shift um, in, in, in positions. You know, um, ALBA used to be, you know, a block that um, was very forceful. And, and over time, you saw shifting and changes. Um, I think we've lost a bit. You, you realize here how much oral tradition there is and how much of a, a training ground and learning environment it is in terms of, you know, as new delegates come in, they do have to learn and absorb. It's not a book or play. There's no playbook. Um, and each individual, you know, if, if that education chain is broken, um, or altered, and you know the WTO is filled with, um, as I like to say, you know, pragmatism broke the WTO. Like we're, there's these, we all sit around the table and we know that well, this is a terrible thing to do, but we have to do this today to get through this, right? Two days later, somebody new walks in and says, well, that's how it's done, right? And I mean, you've probably seen it too, where where these exceptions that we made that we thought were terrible, but you know, we had to make a sacrifice of. We bent the rules once, and you know it's a story of the appellate body. Oh, I'll bend the rule today, just this once, and then within six months, it's understood that that's the rule. And you're like, wait, how did that happen? Um, and so I have seen kind of this, um, and maybe you know when you come in and you're new and you don't, you know, maybe it's always been like uh, I'm, it's not like it was better when I was here and now it's worse. I, in my perspective, it is, but maybe. I'm just naive and maybe I didn't know what I was looking at. But, um, and I do feel like the pandemic has really knocked us back. I mean, there's a, you know, an entire generation of delegates that didn't even meet each other. Yeah. <laughs> so we, that, that chain of, of kind of observing and slowly integrating is, has been broken. Um, and you do see there's not, a, there's not that much of a willingness to communicate with each other. There's a lot more statement readings. There's a lot more, um, you know, rigid positions taken. 
Um, there's not kind of an agenda that, you know, encourages you to compromise here because you need somebody over there. It's very extreme. Um, and I think it's not, the pandemic didn't cause it, but the, but the isolation everything. has accelerated it. Mm, yeah. But uh, about, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but there's a bit of institutional memory. Like how, mm -hmm. how do you think we could preserve that institutional memory from one uh, cohort of delegates to the next one and that it continues like in this chain? It, whose role is it? Is it the role of the WTO? Is it the role of each member? Is it the role of... Yeah, I, I mean, that's a good question because I'm thinking back on, okay, well, how did I, who did I learn from? Um, I think it is a collective, you know, responsibility. I don't think any one or two or ten delegations um, can do it. Um, I, th you know, not, you know, it's probably heresy to say, but I do think, you know, we need to examine. There's pluses and minuses to this whole joint statement initiative kind of trend. Um, that, in many ways, it's fantastic because it has opened up. You know, there's clearly interest and there's there's pent up demand for discussion on certain things, but at the same time, it's it's um, diminished the need to maintain the house itself, right? And I I do feel like it has undercut. You know, the response. If you if you feel that you can just walk down the hall and have a conversation, then you're less inclined to build an agenda in a committee that has something for everyone. And I do feel like our committees have suffered a bit. Um, you know, we've had this conversation on, on the MISMEs. I think the, the SME conversation has been fantastic, but after three years, it hasn't cycled back. Like, everything we do has resonance for small and medium-sized enterprises in some way, and so why, you know, If we're not making sure that the import licensing agreement and customs valuation agreement and trade facilitation agreement are being implemented in a way that helps SMEs, then what's the point of going down the hall and discussing it in isolation where we can't do anything? So in a way, it's like it's great that we're talking about it, and it's not that I'm criticizing the conversation, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of investment to make this place work, and everybody has to pitch into it, and I, I, I think we've dug ourselves a little bit of a hole. I'll probably get criticized for saying that, but, um, you know, we need to reflect on, okay, well, what makes, what makes that interesting and what makes that dynamic, and how can we, can we, or how can we, um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't want to have that discussion, but again, this is multilateralism. You, you know, we all have to, we are drug into conversations that we don't want to have, But for the sake of the system, you need to at least listen. Um, Another aspect that we were talking about is about the conversations that we, we were having. And I do remember uh, that there are, some, there are some committees or some strands of work that we do at the WTO that are more cohesive and more, for example, like all of the lawyers that we do dispute settlement, mm -hmm. like it's very tight community, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily translate to all of the others. And when you have this tight community, there's trust between them and you can, you can have conversations, you can exchange ideas, you can, you can do many things, but I feel that that doesn't necessarily extrapolate to the whole organization and also like jointly the whole organization itself. So it's like very, like a lot of silos. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I do think, um, at least that's how I remember, that there used to be um, much more active, um, there was this middle ground between committees and JSIs, right? And there were these um, coalitions or cohorts or, um, you know, friend, real good friends of, friends of fish, you had real good friends of services, we had the Colorado group for TF, you know, 15, 20, 30 members that consistently contributed 
to, you know, and built up that trust. And, you know, um, and I, I think I, I don't see that happening in the same way anymore. Um, maybe, you know, some of the committees have become kind of a bit toxic and maybe people don't feel that it's worth it. Um, energy has moved to the JSI space. Um, and so I do think we need to reflect a bit on, you know, the committees can't run themselves. Committee work, you know, I, I worked on TBT committee for a long time and I, I do, you know, think that um, there is value in routine committee work that accomplishes multiple goals, which is one, educate delegates on the meaning and the, and, and the purpose of the agreement in very simple ways. Um, and that it's sustained over one or two years, um, you can work on conformity assessment. You may not have a clue what conformity assessment means when you show up here, but you take part in the work and you learn from others and, and it builds that kind of understanding and trust. Um, some committees don't have, they just meet and they don't have kind of onward work that incentivizes yeah. that you know, one, they're not training people to, to understand the purpose of the agreement um, and sending them back out into the world better for it. Two, they're not building a community that gets along with each other or understands you give and take, you know, to reach an outcome. Um, and then three, you see people grow and you, you, you see them build a capacity and it it has that centrifugal force of, of making it more interesting and engaging here um, because each time you go to a meeting, you also feel like you've come out learning, you know, having learned something. Um, and that, you know, is a big piece of TF where I didn't know anything about Brazilian customs until I had to work with them to get three articles through, right? In the last two or three years, the last five years, I'm not sure anybody has really explained how a system. <laughs> We've just lost that ability to peel away um, and open up and say, look, this is what my law says. This is, you know, help me draft, you know, sometimes we create a discipline and, and there's unintended consequences, right? And it's like, well, that wasn't the purpose of my discipline. So I'm happy to find a way to clarify. And I think we, you know, it's boring and it, that takes a long time, but that is what we're here to do. And I, I do feel like we've lost that thread, um, to me, that's would be that's the pathway to reform, and maybe reform means something different to different people. But uh, we have to find our way back to collectively achieving things, big and small, because that is the piece that's. It's not the agenda that's the problem. Yeah. To me, it's not just throwing more items on the agenda. I think that a lot of your observations on this are informed by your experience like, that you had in trade facilitation. Mm -hmm. I think also we work together in government procurement, mm -hmm. which I think it's also mm -hmm. similar to this. It's, a, it's like a family, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah, a government yeah. procurement family. Um, but I think that these lessons can certainly apply broadly to everything that we are doing here at the WTO. And I mean, I, I started here at the WTO around the same time that you did, and I do what you are saying, that's being true, mm -hmm. based on what I've also seen myself. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I, I had thought about, but I hadn't really put into, into words, but hearing you say this, it does make sense. And I don't know how we get back to that. I don't know, um, I took it for granted. You know, I think I came in, I was amazed. There was, you know, incredibly talented people. Um, and I, you know, I, I absorbed it, but I, I don't think that I took notes on how would I replicate <laughs> And, I, you know, that, to me, that's the sort of challenge of, um, you know, I don't know if reform is the right word, but it's the word we're using to, um, you know, make sure that this piece of multilateralism continues to be relevant. So now that we started a new year, like what are some of the things that you expect to see uh, in the next few months in the WTO? 
or would you or more that you would like to see mm -hmm. <laughs> well yeah i mean i have my own you know my own secret agenda and we'll see where you know again like again getting back to um finding ways to um put small digestible pieces of work in front of the committees um understanding how it works empowering people to to make it work at home um it's not kind of sexy or or twitter worthy but there is a foundational piece that I think we need to, to, to do. So, you know, we're one of our, you know, we're very focused on, we, we contribute a lot to the committees. Um, we do a lot of work in the committees um, to make sure that the transparency pieces work, but also to drive, you know, like I said, work on conformity assessment, you know, in, in TBT, work on a new and emerging SPS issues in SPS. Um, but we should also be thinking about, okay, Let's review import licensing and customs valuation and see, you know, I'm sure they have a purpose, but we need to rethink the way in which trade works and how do they fit in. And I'm not saying revise the agreements, but begin to make sure that, you know, we're... I don't think we were sent here to make rules to enforce on other people. I think part of why we were sent here is to make sure that we understand and make our own systems work better. Right? And for the betterment of, of trade, for the, for the facilitation of goods or, or whatever public policy actions. And, and again, that comes from the work I did in the TBT committee where you know, we, we spent a lot of time strengthening inquiry points. Right? They're just people, but they need an administrative structure that empowers that connection to make the agreement work. And we're all at different, you know, we all have different legal systems, we all have different administrative systems, we all have different cultural systems. There's no one size that can fit, but you know, that's why there's 164 of us. Someone's gonna have an experience that resonates. <laughs> If you can just tease it out, you can build on it. Um, so there's that, the, the committee piece, I think we're, we're really interested in, in revitalizing and making sure that we're doing something for someone. We're not just arguing abstract ideology here. Um, we are, you know, addressing, you know, gaps. SMEs can't do certain things, or transparency, you know, is more important for SMEs in this area. Can we can we do better? Um, I think we. I personally would like to see, um, you know, if I had a nickel for every time someone said development is the centrality, the WTO, whatever that stupid phrase is, but it's like it's meaningless. It's become, um, you know, so oversaid. But I, 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 to me, my background is very much, you know, the developmental piece of, of implementing these trade rules. And we don't have a development discussion here. We fight about development and we argue about development, but no one ever wants to talk about development <laughs> in, in a meaningful way. And so I think we're, you know, we're interested in, in looking at you know a better understanding of development assistance how it works it is so dynamic now it is so you know what USAID is doing is so dynamic compared to how we do trade <laughs> you know leveraging you know putting together digital advancements with economic growth i mean you've got to marry these things together so let's bring some of that together um, we can't we can't make progress on these issues. It's not to say that, that things are easy. We can, we can acknowledge how difficult these things are and that we're all somewhere else, somewhere different on the spectrum. Um, but we can't let the difficulties, you know, the global economy is an incredibly competitive, brutal place. We can't pretend that it isn't, um, but we can try and share some experiences and get some work done. So I, we would, would very much like to see us get back to the basics of well what are the connections between the GATT and the WTO rules and the underpinnings of governance that support development right um, you know and, and, and that may open up a little bit more space for um, reduce the temperature on 
discussing things like digital or, you know, I mean, we need to find we need to find some common ground before we tackle some of the big picture issues that people keep saying that they want to tackle. Um, agriculture issues, fisheries issues, subsidies, you know, industrial subsidies. To me, those are really important, but we don't have the right underpinning at this point to have a conversation with 164 members on those complicated issues. We need to... So, I mean, I guess... My goals are more um, foundational than at this point. Some, I mean, you know, we have to look at the, we have to have some aspirational goals too, but um, we also need to do some work on the baby steps. Baby right. steps. First, right? <laughs> um, well, David, it has been a great and I think insightful conversation uh, following your experience, but also how you see the WTO and you, because you are. You have been here for a while, so you have seen mm -hmm. uh, how it has changed. And I really appreciate the time that you gave us and this wonderful conversation. Well, thank you. I really appreciate all your work, and it's been fantastic to have a conversation with you. Thank, thank you. you, David. This was the One Alpha Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?